What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast, brought to you by discipleship.org. And this is your host, Dave Stovall. Today, we're listening to Tina Wilson of womenofrenew.org as she talks about helping women step into Scripture. This is part one of two episodes, so make sure you hit subscribe so you know when I release the next one so that you can catch up with the rest of this story. Sometimes when we approach Scripture, we're looking at each verse through a me lens instead of like a God-centered lens, and this is really just human nature. Today, Tina is encouraging us to take that, shift that away from us, and look for Jesus inside every single Scripture verse that we read. Let's listen in as Tina encourages us on how to do that today. Enjoy the episode. How is everybody doing? Everybody good? Yes. Today, I know some of you are here for Renew. Uh, I am not Tina Wilson. <laughs> uh, my name is Jason, and I run operations for Renew.org, and this is part of uh, one of our tracks. And so I uh, just wanted to start off by telling a little bit about Renew.org. We are a partner organization of discipleship.org. We share the point leader in Bobby Harrington. And the best way I can describe the difference is uh, we're both laser focused on disciple making, but discipleship.org generally focuses on Jesus' methods, uh, whereas we focus on Jesus' teaching. So the doctrine that undergird the methodology, uh, we have found that you can't have a sustained disciple-making movement if you don't have solid teaching that supports it. Um, And so I'm excited to run Renew. I get to run with a lot of great leaders that uh, love biblical clarity and and the clarity that brings to our life when we use the Bible as the final authority. And not the least of these is Tina. Uh, We're happy to partner with her and her husband, Matt. Uh, They are great church leaders uh, at Ecclesia. Uh, they're also great authors and speakers, and so we capitalize on them. Whenever we can have them be a part um, of our events, uh, we're so honored to have them part of our network. And um, this is an exciting class because she's going to be uh, teaching from some of the work that she's done in her forthcoming book. It should be coming out in the next 30, 60 days um, called Stepping into Scripture. Uh, it's a, really a, an enormous work of a daily devotional uh, based on the teachings of Jesus. So she's staying true to the Bible and the teachings that are there um, if you want to use that as a final authority but still be relevant um, to life and the culture around us. And so, anyways, thanks for giving me a listen. I'm going to turn it over to Tina now. All right. Thanks, Jason. All right. Thank you, ladies, for being here. We are going to come together, like Jason said, in this workshop and talk about stepping into Scripture. So just a quick introduction. My name is Tina Wilson, like you said. I am a pastor's wife and a mom of seven. Um, I'll show you my family real quick. Last time I was speaking at a conference, I noticed every single speaker was showing a picture of their family, and I thought, oh my gosh, I didn't even think to do that. And then I felt terrible. So this time, I remembered. <laughs> so these are my seven kids. I've got six girls, one boy, their names all start with R, and a little English bulldog whose name starts with a C. <laughs> because that was what he was named when we adopted him. So uh, that's my family. My husband and I have committed our lives to serving Jesus as church planters, Bible teachers, authors. And uh, one thing I am really, really passionate about is leading people through reading the entire Word of God. 
Um, I believe this is the best way to grow in your spiritual walk. I believe it's the best way to develop biblical literacy. And I believe it's the best way to disciple women. I love that opening talk we just heard. I couldn't have asked for a better setup for what I'm going to be walking through with you all. And that is really just a call to commit yourselves to reading the entire word of God. But this is an hour-long workshop, and I want to use that hour uh, at the end to have some questions from you all. But to tell you why, I think uh, I hate that we need a justification for why this is the right answer, but we do. A matter of fact, I have a podcast through Renew, and uh, season one of this podcast is nothing but answering objections that I've heard from women about why I don't need to, don't want to read the entire Bible. Things like, well, I prefer topical studies over the whole text, or it's impossible for me to read and understand the whole thing, or I really don't have time for that. I mean, we come up with so many reasons why this is not the answer, just committing ourselves to reading the whole Bible. And I think sometimes we do that because it just feels like too simple of an answer, right? We look at social media and Bible study has become more of an aesthetic than it has a spiritual discipline. It is all about drawing beautiful pictures in the margins of our Bibles to express deep spiritual truths. And I'm going, that's wonderful. But if I drew in my Bible, I would never even have time to read it, right? Or maybe it's not too simple for us. Maybe it's just too long of an answer because we want a YouTube video that's going to give us the rebuttal we need for the debate we're in or the answer we need for the problem that we have, right? Reading the whole thing is the long game. And often we don't want the long game. But I want to tell you why. I want to commit this workshop to helping you uh, commit to the long game of reading the entire Word of God, Genesis to Revelation. Here's some thoughts. You can do it in many different ways. My favorite way to read the Bible is a 365-day chronological plan. If you do that, you're going to be reading for 15 minutes a day. And the truth is there's no one in this room who doesn't have time for that, right? Now, I'm saying that to you as a homeschool mom with seven kids, okay? We have time for this. And I work <laughs> at a church which means I don't have normal hours ever, but we have time for it. You can read the Bible in 180 days by reading it for half an hour a day. One time I let a 90-day read through. We read for one hour a day. Don't necessarily recommend that, but it is one way that you can do it. So that was that would be what I would encourage you to do as we think about making this commitment tonight, this commitment that it really I want to challenge you all to make is that you would Commit yourselves to reading the whole thing. I would recommend a 365-day plan. Read it chronologically. It's a little less confusing there. Um, but I also want to give you some helpful questions for you to consider as you read that I think will help uh, develop biblical literacy and not make this thing feel like an impossible feat. There's just no way that I can read and understand the whole thing. I think a lot of times we land on these excuses because we are just trained to be self-centered, right? I've been the queen of this. It's just the society that we live in. And so not just the Bible. We read anything through a me-centered lens instead of a God-centered lens. What is this saying to me? But when we start to read the Bible through a God-centered lens instead of a me-centered lens, our whole perspective changes. All of a sudden, a lot of our objections start falling off. And, and just one step further than that with application, which is a totally different conversation, 
But once we start recognizing our commission in that God story, then the whole world changes. That's when we are deployed to do just what we're hearing about this week is to go and make disciples. But I want to get really practical with you in this workshop and look at five specific questions that I believe we can ask as we commit ourselves to reading the whole word of God that are going to uh, help us overcome the objections and help us to find success in this feat. And I appreciate Jason mentioning the book that I have coming out. It's called Step Into Scripture, and it goes through all these questions as well. So the first two we're just going to sit with for a minute, and they're context questions. Our first speaker this morning alluded to this too, just the importance of context. So question one, who is the Scripture meant for? And question two, why was the Scripture written? And let me just mention here, sometimes this is just inherent in the scripture, right? Like when Paul writes a letter, he has a salutation. We know who's writing it. We know who he's writing to. We can even line it up with the book of Acts and kind of get some understanding of what the occasion is, what the purpose of the letter is, because we read about churches being planted and growing in Acts, and then we read about the letters those churches are receiving as we go through the epistles. So when that is not apparent and self-contained in the text, the context Where do we go there? Um, I love as much as possible just letting Scripture interpret Scripture. There are a plethora of resources out there, and none of them are going to give you what the Bible can. My book will not give you what the Bible can. So as much as possible, stick in the Scripture. But when you need context answers, a few good options here are a study Bible, uh, a Bible dictionary where you can look up uh, people groups or regions and get some background information there. And this is super simple, but the Bible Project has really great videos on YouTube. Now, I know I just said we don't want to play the short game and look up a YouTube video, but just for context, I always suggest to people when you're starting to read the Bible, you're going to read the whole thing through when you move into a new book. So you start in Genesis, go to YouTube, type in Bible Project Genesis. You'll get a three-minute cartoon, and it's going to give you some excellent context and structure for the book. So that's a good place for that. But I want to just land on context here and talk about this for a minute, why this is so important to the long game that I'm asking you to commit to. And I want to borrow an illustration from Jen Wilkin. Has anybody ever read anything that she's written? She's got some great resources, and she gives one of the best explanations of the importance of context in Scripture that I've ever heard. So I'm just going to share it with you. She notes that the city of Rome has existed since the 8th century B.C., and when its modern-day citizens want to do a home improvement project of any kind that's going to require excavation, they have to call in an archaeologist. And that's because modern-day Rome is built on top of ancient Rome. And so while uh, the, the buildings of ancient Rome are not visible for the most part, many of them are well-preserved because uh, through the years people have just filled in with dirt and then built on top of what was beneath. And so kind of the result is that you have a city upon a city. So because of that, Rome does not allow its residents to dig without regard for the rich and relevant history underneath. So if if you are living in Rome and you want to complete some sort of project on your home just to make it more suitable for what you prefer for the short time you're going to live there, you're supposed to uh, pr- uh, present that to the city, to call in the team of archaeologists, because you're living in a context that is much bigger than the short time you're going to be dwelling there. Here's how Jen Wilkin puts it. She says, living in Rome 
is paying respect to its original inhabitants, occupying a modern space while maintaining an ancient perspective. So imagine how irresponsible it would be if we were going to start renovating a private Roman residence just because we wanted it more suited to our taste, and we failed to notify the proper authorities just for selfish reasons because we want it to look a certain way, and we had no regard for this incredible record of human history that we could be disturbing. That is the same irresponsibility that we demonstrate when we swoop in on a Bible passage and rip it right out of its context to make it about me, right? Because I want to read it with a me-centered lens. And we have no regard for the writer's intent or for the context of the people to whom uh, he was writing the original text because a Bible passage can never mean what it never meant. But we do that, and that's a self-centered way that we read the Bible. And I want to just give you a quick example here. Uh, I saw recently where a news outlet with well over a million followers suggested on social media that a statue of a winged jaguar that was put in New York was a fulfillment of a vision that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. Now, this is a terribly irresponsible use of Scripture, to lead hundreds of thousands or even a million people to believe that a vision that God gave Daniel for his people Israel who were in in slavery, in captivity, in exile, in Babylon, a vision that was for them in the 6th century B.C. is about a statue located in New York in the 21st century A.D. That's a terribly irresponsible use of Scripture, and yet... We do this and it's pervasive and it comes from biblical illiteracy that completely ignores context. Just like a Roman citizen going in and just destroying what lays underneath with no regard for it. So those are just two opener questions that are going to help us commit to the long game because now we don't have to make up meanings for this kind of thing. We're going to search them out. We're going to pay attention to the context. All right, so the next question, and we're going to sit on this one a little longer, question number three, is what does this passage teach me about the character and nature of God? So if you're doing a year-long Bible read-through, you're going to read for 15 minutes a day, and at the end of that 15 minutes, after you've identified these context questions, you can sit with, What do I learn about the character of God from this passage? And I want to just give you three examples of God's character on display as you read the Bible. So the first one I want to talk about is God's law. Now, the law passages are sometimes things that we want to neglect, right? Because it's Old Testament law and so much of it does not apply to me today. And yet it's important Because like the Ten Commandments, for example, this is a great place to examine the character of God. And the reason for that is that rules reflect our character and they show what we value. So think of the rules that you have in your home, right? Like I have rules about um, chores and cleaning routines because I value a healthy and orderly environment in my house. I have rules about the way that we treat each other, about the way that siblings are supposed to interact because I value peace and mutual respect. So our rules are a reflection of our values, of our character, right? What God's rules tell us is that he values our relationship with him and our relationships with other people. So his Ten Commandments, we stop reading it through a me-centered lens that says, here's my to-do list, and instead we look at the character of God through those, and we learn that the heart of God is to love him 
and to love other people. And when we get out of keeping God's commands just out of the sake of duty, out of the sake of a checklist, then we start to understand why God created us, because he wanted us to dwell with him. He wanted this holiness. His law becomes a gift to us, a gift that shows us how we can live in right relationship with him. So Jesus dealt with this when he was doing his ministry on earth. There were theological debates about which command was the most important. And Jesus clarified the issue by bringing his audience back to let's talk about the character of God. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-six and 40, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Well, that wasn't one of the Ten Commandments, right? What is Jesus doing? He's saying, look at the character of the Father that's expressed in the law. That's the point that we're all missing. Right, Because these these Pharisees and teachers of the law are reading it through a me-centered lens. Well, I want to look pious and I want to look holy, so tell me what's the most important thing to do. And he says, this isn't about you. This is about the character of the Father. So in revealing God's character, the law also taught what sin is. Because the law, again, is a gift to us to keep us from sin because God's character is that he doesn't want us to be separated from him and sin creates that boundary between us. So many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they prided themselves on keeping the law like a checklist and missed the point of it entirely. Jesus pointed back to the character of the Father in his Sermon on the Mount which is a new covenant parallel to Moses ascending Mount Sinai to first receive the law. And we'll get into that more in this last question. But Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus says, You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment. He goes on in 27 and 28. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's he saying? That the heart of the father is that he just doesn't want you to be uh, separated from him by sin. And he doesn't want you to be separated from others by sin. He values your relationship with him and your relationship with others. So the religious leaders, they oppose Jesus trying to use the law to prove their own righteousness through their me-centered lens. But the Apostle Paul, who is showing us how to rightly do this thing, he said that the law does exactly the opposite of that. In Romans 7, Paul reasoned through all these implications of God's law, and here's the conclusion he came to. I'm a wretched man in need of a deliverer. Right? That's what the law was exposing, that God was holy. That's his character. That's his nature. And The people knew this in the Old Testament, too, at Mount Sinai after God gave the law. Here's what Exodus 20, 18 and 19 says about that. When the people saw thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled in fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Why? Because they recognized the character of God, his holiness, And they recognized that they needed a mediator. You talk to us, don't have God talk to us. And so that's what God does. He provides them with a deliverer and a mediator in the person of Moses. Just like he provides us with a deliverer and a mediator in the person of Jesus. Because the character of the Father is that he wants us to find forgiveness and he wants us to find restoration. And we can recognize his character by reading his law with a God-centered lens. Does that make sense? 
All right, let's talk about the favor of God. A place that we often check out is where? If you start reading the Bible all the way through, where are you going to check out? Leviticus, right? You're going to make it through Genesis and Exodus. The last half of Exodus is going to be difficult because you get all these things repeated. But then you're going to get to Leviticus and go, this is not uh, for me. Because it's not about you, right? Because we want something we can read through a me-centered lens. Instead, Leviticus teaches us about the character of God. At the end of the book, we get this incredible list of blessings that God just wants to pour out on Israel. And then we also get the uh, conditional context for them receiving these things. You will be blessed if you do these things. Basically, if you follow my law through which I've revealed my character to you. And then it's followed by the converse scenario, the curses that Israel will incur if they don't obey the commands of the Lord. The same structure is echoed in Deuteronomy 28, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And in that, rather than going, man, God's so strict, God's got all these rules, when we flip this and look at it through a God-centered lens, then we start to recognize that the conditional nature of the blessings and curses teach us something about the favor of God. They teach us that God loves every person, every nation, every church. God does not equally bless every person, every nation, every church. And so what we can glean from this, if we want to apply this, understanding the character of God is, if we lack the character of God, that that we find in Scripture, His nature shows us that it seems to be predicated on spiritual commitments like integrity and humility and fear of the Lord and obedience to His commands. So if we lack that, we learn that we can back up, humble ourselves, and respond to Him in true obedience because the Scripture tells us that His character is that obedience brings blessings. He values obedience. Why? Because he wants to be in relationship with us and sin breaks that relationship. This is all about his love for us. That's his character as he's a loving God. Probably uh, the most misunderstood picture of God's grace on display or God's character on display in scripture is, is God's grace. And this is really my favorite one um, because when we read scripture through a me-centered lens, We see just consequence, just judgment, just condemnation. But look how this changes when we read it through a God-centered lens. Let's start in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they're banished from the garden, right? Cut and dry. Well, gosh, God just sent them out. There's a punishment. There's a condemnation. But that's actually one of the most beautiful pictures of God's grace and one of the first pictures of God's grace in scripture because listen to what it says Genesis 3 22 through 24 and the Lord God said the man has now become like one of us knowing good from evil he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever so the Lord banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. What an act of grace that God would not allow man to live forever in a fallen state separated from him. You know what the definition of being separated from God for all eternity is? That's hell. That's what hell is. Now, death was a consequence of the sin that they committed, but it was an even greater act of grace because what it said is man now doesn't have to live in a fallen world 
unable to experience the the unhindered presence of God, like what Adam and Eve enjoyed at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when they heard the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You're talking about people who were in a perfect state and God could dwell with them in body. God could speak to them audibly. And he wants to restore us to that. What an act of grace that he wouldn't allow humanity to live forever and not experience that because the eternal presence of God, unhindered, unbroken, unmarred by sin. That's the definition of heaven. That's paradise, right? Now, when you come to Revelation 15 and 16, this picture of God's grace carries all the way from Genesis to Revelation. You you come to a place where there are seven angels and they're carrying seven bowls that are filled with the wrath of God. <laughs> Isaiah 51 uh, matches up with this and also describes God's wrath in the same way as Revelation 15 and 16. And the idea that's being presented in these chapters of Revelation is that God is moving and acting and bringing judgments that are now going to unfold. And the saints are praising God because of the victory that he's about to accomplish in these judgments. So this is just another picture of God's grace and how this connects from beginning to end. These bowls, when you read them, sound very much like the plagues that befell the Egyptians in the book of Exodus when God was delivering his people out of, uh, out of slavery. And in the midst of these bowls of wrath in Revelation, just like in the midst of the plagues in Egypt, there's a continual opportunity to repent. Why? Because this is not a picture of a God who is filled with wrath and wants to destroy humanity. It's a picture of a God who is just trying to remove the sin barrier, calling people to repent, issuing judgments to push them toward restoration with himself. So when Pharaoh, king of Egypt, refused to let the Israelites take their journey into the wilderness. They wanted to go and worship the Lord on a three-day journey. Then God unleashes the series of plagues on them that are announced by Moses. And the plagues serve as just a powerful revelation of who God is. Here's a great place to see his character on display and also to see his grace. In Exodus 5, 2, Pharaoh asked, "'Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? "'I don't know who the Lord is, and I will not let Israel go.'" Here's God's grace. He introduces himself very clearly because the Egyptians, they believed in a vast number of deities. Uh, they included minor deities, spirits, demons, monsters, and even Pharaoh himself was viewed as a god by the ancient Egyptians. And God said this in Exodus twelve twelve: I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. See, this wasn't about I want to destroy these people. This is about, I want to get rid of your idols because this is a problem. This is a sin barrier between you and me. Israel is the nation through whom uh, God chose elected to bring the Messiah, but God never rejected every other nation. He has always loved all people and desired our restoration. So God, if the purpose was to just destroy the Egyptians, if the purpose was just to pour out wrath and condemnation, he could have just skipped to plague number 10. Just take out the firstborn. That's what did the trick. That That's when he let him go, right? But instead, look at how he acts in grace to systematically get rid of their idols and show them, introduce himself to them. Uh, he turns the Nile to blood because Egyptians worshipped the God of the Nile. All the fish died because I, Egypt worshipped um, a fish goddess. 
He, uh, he sends the plague of the frogs because Egypt worshipped a frog-headed goddess of fertility. He sends the plague on the livestock because Egypt worshipped a cow-headed goddess of love. And this was a particularly powerful one because when God sent this plague, Pharaoh could look out and see that none of the Israelites' livestock had been affected only the Egyptians had. Why? Because the Israelites weren't worshiping their livestock. God didn't need to present himself to them in that way. This was an act of grace to say, don't you see the distinction? Just like we talked about the favor of God. Don't you see the blessing that comes from obedience? Don't you want that? Don't you want to be reconciled to me? He sends the plague of the boils, which couldn't be stopped by Egypt's deity of healing. He sends the plague of the locust because Egypt worshiped a locust headed God of the harvest. He sends the plague of darkness because Egypt worshipped Amon-Re, their sun god. And then finally, the death of the firstborn for a couple reasons. Number one, it affected Pharaoh and his son, who were worshipped as deities themselves. But also, they worshipped Isis, the protector of children. So God acts in grace by one by one defeating their idols And they have the opportunity to repent, right? Moses goes to Pharaoh every time in between and says, God says, let my people go. He gives them opportunity to repent. And then Moses prays for the plagues to end when Pharaoh relents. He never repents. He does relent at times. And then God answers his prayer. And look why scripture says he does it. Exodus 9, 29. So that Egypt may know that the earth is the Lord's. This is an act of grace. This is God glorifying himself to them so that they would be drawn to him. The goal is always to show people uh, that they they want to be drawn to the Lord. His goal is always to draw people in. Pharaoh remained in rebellion, and so uh, God hardened his heart. And then his arrogance, he tried to stand against God until his nation was in ruins. In the same way, just like with the bowls in Revelation, in Revelation 15 and 16, what we find there is people would not repent. And while God is gracious, that's true of his character. He is also just. That's true of his character. And so he brings vindication for what opposing empires do to Christians and what they did to Christians in the first century. So I hope that that maybe gives you a shift of perspective from me-centered to God-centered, because once we start to recognize his character in Scripture, we go, wow, he really loves us so much that every single thing that he has ever orchestrated in humanity since the very beginning has all revolved around one thing. He just loves me and wants to be in relationship with me. The rise and fall of nations has been orchestrated around God's desire to be back in perfect fellowship with mankind. That's his character. He's a God of love and a God of justice. So a fourth question that you should ask as you read is this. How does the text I'm reading point me to Jesus? This is huge. Because we know that we're clearly introduced to Jesus when we come to the New Testament, the Gospels, right? We read about his birth, his baptism, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. And one of the things that people often say to me when they don't want to commit to reading the whole Bible is, why in the world do I need to read the Old Testament when I live under the New Covenant? I had a a young woman coming to a Bible study I was leading. She went to a different church. She was coming to my church just for Bible study. And she said, you know, I really enjoy coming here, but a bunch of people in my church are saying, why are you going over there? You don't need to read the Old Testament. That is totally false. Because when we learn to read Scripture through a God-centered lens not a me-centered lens, then we begin to recognize Jesus Christ written on every page, 
even of the Old Testament. So I want to just give you some examples of this because the, the goal here is what I would love is just to hand you these tools by modeling what it looks like to find the character of God in these passages and to find the centrality of Christ in these passages, uh, not because these are the best answers. These are just some places I've seen it. But you can go and you can read the Bible and you can search out these things. You can walk women through the Bible and disciple them as together you search out these things. I'm just giving you some examples of it. So let's talk about the centrality of Christ all through the Old Testament. And I want to do this by looking at just four different genres of literature that we find in the Old Testament. It can be broken down into narrative and history, law, prophetic announcements, and then lament, praise, and wisdom. And some of these are are places where we go in Scripture and we go, okay, that's definitely irrelevant to me, but it's not because Jesus is still the center of it. So let's just start with one quick account from the narrative. So we're just going to look at the centrality of Christ in those four Old Testament genres, beginning with history and narrative. I'm just going to read you a couple of verses from Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. And I don't have these whole passages on the screen, but if you want to open your Bible and read along, you're welcome to. Genesis 14, 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, came out and brought bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So a key event in God's story comes in Genesis. It's God's calling Abram out of Ur to go to what God calls a land I will show you. Just go in faith. Don't even know where you're going. And Abram responded with immediate obedience. He settled in a land and his nephew Lot lived east of him on a plain near Sodom. And so if you know the story in Genesis, some neighboring kings all made an alliance and they attacked Sodom and they took Lot as a prisoner of war. So Abram responded to this by gathering all the men of his household and they went in pursuit of these kings. They recovered Lot and all his possessions. And as he's returning from that victory, from rescuing Lot, that's where we find this mysterious account just three verses, 18, 19, and 20 of Genesis chapter 14 about this character who comes to meet him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Now, at this point in Genesis, we've not even read about a priesthood. We don't even know what that means. So what's going on here? Why does he show up? Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils that he has received from war. And then that's just all the chapter says about him. That's it. Just a random three verses stuck right there in Genesis chapter 14. But what we find when we commit ourselves to reading the whole of Scripture is is basically always what's hidden or cryptic or mysterious in the Old Testament is revealed and made plain and fulfilled in the New Testament. And that's why I say I like to let Scripture be self-contained and let Scripture interpret Scripture as much as possible. And in that way, we don't rip it out of context because the Bible has answers for everything in the Bible. This is just a side note, but, you know, people want to read the Bible and they want to jump to Revelation because it's weird, right? It's not weird, though. The only reason it's weird is because they didn't read the Old Testament first. Because if you've read all the other 65 books leading up to Revelation, then when you get there, you know what you find out? There's not a single new symbol introduced in the book of Revelation. Those are all repeats that you've read from earlier, and you were given some context for them. So... That's a side note. Let's go back to Melchizedek. So what we find shadowed, cryptic, mysterious in the Old Testament is revealed, made plain, fulfilled in the New Testament. So that's where we go when we want to learn more about Melchizedek. 
Number one, he was called King of Salem, which is likely the place later called Jerusalem. Number two, we read that he served Abram bread and wine, which are the same memorials that Jesus later reconstituted and said, this now represents my body that's broken for you and my blood that's spilled for you. Um, he was a priest and king, which is interesting because those are two offices that could never come from the same two tribes of Israel, right? When we get to the nation of Israel, which doesn't even exist yet, that's going to be Abraham's descendants. But priests come from the line of Levi and uh, kings come from the line of Judah. But here's Melchizedek, who's a priest and a king. And then Abram gives him a tenth of his spoils that he's received from war. And we find that command repeated later in the Bible also. Basically, the entire chapter of Hebrews 7, if you like to make notes in your Bible, maybe out by Genesis 14, 18, 19, and 20, just write Hebrews 7. Because that whole chapter is dedicated to how Melchizedek provides a picture of Christ for us. Christ is central in the book of Genesis, and that's just one of many examples. Hebrews 7, 3 says, Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning or end of days, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And there's still application for us, right? We want to read through a God-centered lens, not a me-centered lens, but that doesn't mean there's not application for us because we still model these truths of the Melchizedek account when we come together and we receive communion. We still model these truths when we come together in worship and we give a tenth of our gross income in tithes and obedience to the Lord. Uh, Melchizedek, like Jesus, is our high priest He's our king. He's our mediator through who we come to God. And in Psalm 110, King David prophesied about a coming Messiah a millennium before he showed up. And here's how he explained this. Psalm 110.4, speaking of Jesus, you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then the Hebrew writer says in the New Testament that Jesus, who is prefigured in the book of Genesis, through Melchizedek, is now able to save completely those who come to God through him because he is the ultimate forever high priest, like this priest that we see in Genesis with no father, no mother, no no genealogical record, right? It's a picture of Christ. So Jesus, certainly written in the book of Genesis, many more times than that, that's just one example. But as you read the book of Genesis, look for him because when we shift to a God-centered lens, oh man, we start finding Jesus everywhere. The next place we see Jesus is in the law, this second Old Testament genre. Um, a great place to find him, I'm not going to read all this in here, but is in Numbers chapter 3 and 4. And I want to just unpack a little bit of that with you. We don't have time to read the whole chapters. But in the book of Exodus, we find a priesthood established as a necessary provision so that God could dwell with his people, right? If you know the account, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. He's got the Ten Commandments. The people are worshiping the golden calf, and God goes, uh, you know what? You're stiff-necked people. I'm still going to fulfill my covenant, right? Because God never breaks his covenant through Scripture. And he made a promise. I'm going to multiply you into a great nation. I'm going to give you an inheritance in the land of Canaan. He's already done the multiplication. He's still going to send them to Canaan, but he says, I'm not going with you because I might kill you on the way because you did this stupid thing and worshipped this calf at the bottom of my mountain while I'm literally speaking to you. Um, and the people cry out, no, we don't want to go if you won't go with us. And so God puts this priesthood in place as a concession for them to meet them where they are. Just like Jesus comes as a lowly man born to a poor family to meet us where we are. And now there's this priesthood through whom 
the people could remain in fellowship with God, though it's hindered fellowship, it's broken fellowship because there's a mediator between them. So the book of Numbers reiterates the duties of this priesthood. They were known as the Levitical duties because, again, priests come from the tribe of Levi. So the tribe of Levi, let's talk about them for just a minute. They were positioned in a special place in the camp. Uh, in the wilderness wandering. And, you know, when we get to the beginning of the book of Numbers and you start reading about the layout of the camp, this is a great place to go. All right, I'm going to check out here because this is monotonous or irrelevant. It has nothing to do with me. Not at all. Even the arrangement of the camp is point to, pointing us toward fulfilled truths that come in Christ about how the center of our lives should be worshiped to God. But they were placed um, in the first ring around the tabernacle. That's how Israel was commanded to camp so that they could do the work of the tabernacle and protect it. Numbers 3.10 says, Appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Anyone else who approaches the sanctuary is to be put to death. So Aaron and his descendants are going to serve as Israel's priest. Um, and although they were Levites, there were also others from the tribe of Levi who were not priests. Because in addition to Aaron and his sons, they're the priest, right? We also have um, the descendants of Kohath, Gershon, and Merari, which form three different divisions of the Levites. So all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Because the Gershonites... They had a different job. They were to guard, care for, and transport the coverings and curtains of the tabernacle. The Kohathites were to guard, care for, and transport the furnishings of the tabernacle. And the Merarites were to guard, care for, and transport the frame and the structural parts for the tabernacle. Only Aaron and his sons were actually allowed to enter the presence of the Lord on behalf of the Israelites and serve in the role of mediator, the role that they asked for. Because they said, don't let God speak to us, we'll die. We need a mediator. So the tabernacle then, before it could be moved, every time Israel moved in their wilderness wondering, Aaron and his sons, who were the only ones allowed to go into the presence of the Lord, they had to go in and cover all the articles and all the furnishings of the tabernacle. And they did this before the other tribes could move the things, before these other divisions of the Levites could come in and pick them up and move them. Um, And if the Kohathites even touched these items or looked at them uncovered, they would die, according to Numbers 4, 15, and 20. So God's holiness was displayed that way in the Old Testament, but it was never diminished through the centuries, even in seasons like right now when God's holiness is not a popular thing to talk about. It's just as much there as it was when people could not even look on the articles of the tabernacle uncovered or they would die. The difference is that God has now made it to where ordinary people are able to do something far more significant than what Moses could do in his role as mediator or than what Aaron or any Levite was permitted to do because he gave ordinary people the ability to see God himself in human form. Not just the tabernacle, not just the articles of the tabernacle. John was one of those regular people, and he wrote about it in the introduction to the gospel. John 1, verses 14 and verse 18, John says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Greek there is he tabernacled with us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. 
So our unholiness, we learn from this law that's spelled out in Numbers and Leviticus, prevents us from standing in the presence of a holy God, but yet Christ is still central to this passage because it points us toward God's one and only Son who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, purifying us, making us holy, so that we can now be in an unhindered relationship with God. The Hebrew writer puts it like this in Hebrews 9, 11, and 12, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. All right, so Christ is central in the law, right? We need to read that. Christ is also central, and this is obvious, but in the Old Testament prophetic announcements. I want to point you toward one in particular, and I think this is one, a good example of the kind of prophetic announcement that we might read in the Old Testament and go, okay, I don't even know what that's about. That's not for me. I'm just going to read you quickly Ezekiel 7, 1 through 10, and or 17, I'm sorry. And if you want to open to Ezekiel 17, we'll take a few verses from here. Again, I just want to model this for you, finding the centrality of Christ in these Old Testament genres. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set forth an allegory and tell it to the Israelites as a parable. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, a great eagle with powerful wings, long feathers and full plumage of varied colors came to Lebanon. Taking hold of the top of a cedar, he broke off its topmost shoot and carried it away to a land of merchants where he planted it in a city of traders. He looked or he took one of the seedlings of the land and put it in fertile soil. He planted it by a willow by abundant water, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots remained under it. So it became a vine and produced branches, and they put out leafy boughs. But there was another great eagle with powerful wings and full plumage. That vine sent out its roots toward him from the plot where it was planted and stretched out its branches to him for water. It had been planted in good soil by abundant water so that it could produce branches, bear fruit, and become a splendid vine. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Will it thrive? Will it not be uprooted and stripped of its fruit so that it withers? All its new growth will wither. It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it up by the roots. It has been planted, but will it thrive? Will it not wither completely when the east wind strikes it, wither away in the plot where it grew? So this illustration has Jesus all over it. Uh, This is... Uh, directed from the prophet Ezekiel to the rebellious house of Judah. And, and as he speaks of Lebanon, that's a reference to Jerusalem. Again, we can find scripture self-contained, uh, descri- uh, uh, referencing itself. So we can cross-reference Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-three and find that Lebanon is a euphemism that the prophets use for Jerusalem. So the first eagle that breaks off and carries away the topmost shoot as King Nebuchadnezzar because the Babylonians invaded. And and Nebuchadnezzar carried away the reigning king of Judah, which was King Jehoiachin, and took him away to exile in Babylon in 597 B.C. And then the seedling that that eagle, King Nebuchadnezzar, planted was King Zedekiah, who he appointed now to rule over Judah after he carried away their sitting king into exile. And... um. And he was going to rule Judah under Babylonian control. Now, Zedekiah, having been installed by Nebuchadnezzar, made an oath to him that he was going to be loyal to him. And although he made that oath, he broke it and he turned toward Egypt looking for help. So when that low spreading vine starts to send its roots out another direction toward another eagle, that's King Hophra, the king of Egypt. 
So that wasn't just a rebellion that Zedekiah committed against Nebuchadnezzar. It was also a rebellion against God because through the prophet Jeremiah, God had told the people of Judah, you need to surrender to the besieging Babylonians. And if you do that, I'm going to take care of you. I'm using the Babylonians as a judgment tool against you because I want to bring you back into fellowship with me. And you have to be disciplined because you're just not getting it. You keep turning to idols. But Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and against God. And he asked for help in Egypt, which God God had told the Israelites when he brought them out of Egypt. You never are supposed to walk that path again. That's a picture of going back into bondage. And I don't want you on that trail. But because of that, um, Zedekiah was had had his eyes gouged out by Nebuchadnezzar and he died in Babylon. That's why it says, will the, will the vine thrive? No, it will wither. It will not take many hands to uproot it because he rebelled against God. And the purpose of Ezekiel presenting this prophetic announcement was so that when that happened, when Zedekiah died in the way that was prescribed, then everyone would know that God's word was true and God really was in control. Why does this matter to us? What does it have to do with Jesus? Well, Ezekiel says that God took another shoot from that cedar, which was Judah, because Zedekiah was the son of King Josiah, who had four sons. And one of those, Jehoiakim, had a son named Jehoiachin, who is known as Jeconiah, when we get to the begats in Matthew, which is a part of scripture no one wants to read, right? But if you don't read it, here's what you miss. You miss the centrality of Christ because this reigning king dies in Babylon, but... Jesus had promised King David centuries before that he would never fail to have a descendant on the throne of Israel. And when we get to Matthew, we find that 14 generations later, after this prophecy was made and this king was deposed, King Jehoiachin, who is renamed Jeconiah in Matthew, he becomes the ancestor of the Messiah. And the Messiah is also referred to in the same way in Isaiah. He's a tender shoot, a root out of dry ground. Ezekiel 17:22 calls him, uh, he says that we, the fulfillment will come with a shoot from the very top of a cedar that will be planted on a high and lofty mountain. And God said that when he planted that shoot, this 14 generations later fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 17, then it would grow into a splendid cedar. And 1723 says birds of every kind will nest in it. And the best news for us, this is why we need to read this, comes at the very end of chapter 17 of Ezekiel, verse 24. It says, all the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. Now, if you're like me, a Gentile, not a Jew, we are the other trees of the forest who could look on that prophetic announcement and see that there was a promise being made, that there was a tall cedar that was going to grow from a shoot picked off and planted on a high and lofty mountain and that birds of every kind, every nationality, every race were going to be able to nest in its branches. See, that's a picture of Jesus. He's central. And that's just one prophetic announcement of hundreds that's important for us to read. And we'll close with just this fourth genre of Old Testament literature, which is lament, wisdom, and praise. Many examples of this. I'm just going to give you one. Psalm chapter 2. It's short. I'm going to read it real quick. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them like pieces of pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead you to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Man, that sounds a lot like what we just read about installing this tender shoot on a high and lofty mountain where birds of every feather could find refuge. Very similar language. These writings in Psalms are such a good example of finding Jesus on every page of the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm chapter 2 is actually the most quoted chapter of the Old Testament by New Testament writers with reference to Jesus. So Psalm chapter 2, for example, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. That's obviously spoken about the coming Messiah, and yet it's spoken in past tense because it's spoken with prophetic certainty that this is what God was going to accomplish in Jesus. Now in Acts chapter 4, Jesus' apostles, Peter and John, they were arrested for preaching the gospel and they stood boldly at their trial and they continued to testify for Jesus. And when they were released, they went back to the other Christians, joined with them in prayer and listened to how they prayed in Acts four twenty-five to 28. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power had decided beforehand would happen. See, David is writing a millennium before Jesus shows up. And then Peter and John and the believers are affirming that this was a prophetic uh, prayer that's that's presented in this psalm of praise that's about the coming Messiah and the things that they were actually going to witness. Jesus is still central in that passage. And when we get the messianic context of the psalms, man, all of a sudden these become very, very powerful when we read them like this one. Psalm 2, 7 to 9, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them like pieces of pottery. Paul was on a missionary journey. He was sharing the gospel in Pisidian Antioch. And here's what he said in Acts 13, 32 and 33. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, like David, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, David says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. He, Paul himself is showing us that these Old Testament wisdom, lament, and praise genres are about Jesus Christ. So Jesus comes, he overcomes sin and death. He says that his inheritance is the end of the earth. The whole world is his possession and no enemy is going to stand against him. And I want to just cap this off in Revelation chapter 19. Because when we come there, we read about a horse with a rider. 
And that writer is called Faithful and True, which is the same name that Jesus gave to describe himself when he wrote to the seven churches of Asia Minor in the first few chapters. And the words that are describing him are very reminiscent of Psalm chapter 2, right? Everybody wants to jump to Revelation. Why doesn't it make sense? Didn't read Psalm chapter 2. Because here how he here is how he's described. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. It's no different than the message of Psalm chapter 2, that the opponents of God, he laughs. They plot in vain. And what's interesting when we come to this Revelation 19 account is the setup is there. The battle lines are drawn. And if you're waiting for that battle and you're all messed up about it, let me just give you some assurance. There's no battle. The lines are drawn. And then what happens is that writer called Faithful and True cast his opponents into the lake of fire. And that's it. That's the end of it. So through all of these passages in the Old Testament, we continue to see one outcome. And it's that Christ is central. But not only that, that Christ is victorious and that we are victorious if we are subjects of his in his victorious reigning kingdom that he established. So when we start to read scripture, understanding that Jesus is the climax and Jesus is the victor for all eternity, it helps us to start recognizing that he is central and it shifts our perspective where we begin to read scripture, not through a me-centered lens, but through a God-centered lens. The fifth question we're not going to get into tonight, but there is a part two of this workshop that I would invite you to come to tomorrow at 9 a.m. The fifth question is, what other scripture connects to what I'm reading today? So we've got our two context questions. We've got our nature of God question. We've got our centrality of Christ question. And we've got our connection question. Now, that's really not a lot. That's just five questions. And all I've done for you tonight is model how to find these things as you read. The connection question, number five, is more difficult. Because if you've never read the whole Bible, if you're reading it for the first time, then you don't know that Melchizedek is going to be explained in Hebrews chapter 7 when you read about him in Genesis 14. So the resource that uh, Jason referred to earlier that I've written, Step into Scripture, uh, what that book does and the way that it can be used as a discipleship tool uh, as you walk with other women through Scripture or just as you develop biblical literacy yourself is that it front loads a lot of those connections. So each time you read that cryptic, mysterious, shadow passage in the New, in the Old Testament, it, go, it, it gives you the spoiler, right? Here's what this is really talking about, and here's the uh, New Testament scripture that affirms that. And I really believe that we are going to do the best job of rightly dividing the Word of God, like we're commanded to do, when we let the Word explain the Word, just like that, when we don't look to uh, outside sources so much for it, but we just say, what other scripture connects to the scripture that I'm reading today. And in that way, we can gain a full and contextual understanding of God's word. So this is your challenge. And then we can answer any questions. I want to challenge you to commit yourself to reading the whole word of God daily, intentionally, strategically. Not a verse here, a verse there, not because I need an answer in this debate or to fill a need um, because I'm feeling a certain kind of way today. But open it up in Genesis and start to read it all the way through. And then the second part of this is ask, as you read, ask yourself the right kind of questions that are going to shift your perspective, which it just happens. It's how we've been raised. We're me-centered, right? But to shift your perspective to God-centered, look for God's character and look for the centrality of Christ in the whole word of God. Okay. 
And if you guys have any questions, that was a lot. <laughs> that was a walk all the way through the Bible. We just went Genesis to Revelation, just like that. Okay? <laughs> Anybody have any questions about anything? Oh, yeah. And um, there's a podcast about this, too. If you would like to check it out, uh, you can text SIS, like sis, like, hey, sister, or also step into scripture <laughs> to 855-721-1400. Uh, that will connect you to the podcast associated with Step Into Scripture. Um, it'll send you a text notification when the book is released. And uh, like Jason was explaining, that's a renew resource that uh, that they make available. Yes. Yep. Tomorrow's workshop at nine a.m. Part two of this is is doing that fifth question. How do we connect it across books and testaments to get a very full picture of the meta narrative or the overarching story? Because the Bible is just one big story. It's 66 books, just one story. Um, and that's really my favorite part. Because once you connect with that, oh man, you're just going to read it again and again and again because you can't get enough of it because you just keep finding them. It's good stuff. Uh, the first four that we talked about tonight was who, who was the scripture written to? Why was it written? What does it teach me about the character and nature of God? How do I see Christ as central in it? And then question number five we'll do tomorrow is how does this connect to other scriptures that I've read? And again, these are just questions to ask daily. If you're reading the Bible for 15 minutes a day, you're going to read the whole thing in a year. And each day, you can just reflect on it. You don't have to like write down your answers, but you can develop biblical literacy and shift to a God-centered perspective just by meditating on the scripture through those questions. And truly, ladies, like it, it'll it'll like transform your life. And if you've read if you've read the whole thing, you already know that. And if you're not sure if you've read the whole thing, then you haven't. That that's something for many for many years I went, well, I've read the Bible, I've heard a lot of sermons. I'm sure I've read the whole thing, maybe not in order. When you hit that last amen at the end of Revelation 22, and you've read the whole thing, like you're going to know it because God's going to have done a work in you. And then you want to do it again. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode today, guys. Up next, we've got more from womenofrenew.org. So if you haven't clicked that subscribe button, I would encourage you to do that now. And I want to ask you, if you haven't already, please drop us a review or a like or a comment. Let us know how we're doing at the Disciple Makers Podcast. All right, y'all, enjoy the rest of your day. And let's all remember to look for Jesus in each Bible verse that we read today. And let that be the lens that we see the world through as well. All right, y'all, we'll see you on the next episode.